Welcome everybody to another episode of Tempered Leadership. I am your host, Eric Rieger. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by a longtime friend of mine, coach, mentor, all around good guy, Kevin Walter. Kevin, welcome to the show. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me, Eric. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Kevin, he is one of the co-founders of Tasty Catering out of Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Uh, they are world famous for their catering specialties and the open book management journey that they've been on. And today, Kevin and I are going to touch on a little bit. I'm going to Kevin give a little bit of background and history on, you know, how he how he started that business with his brothers and the evolution into open book management, and finally the uh, transition that they're going through now from a leadership perspective, um, you know, because Kevin's kind of getting old. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and so, so that, but that's, I think that's a topic that uh, a lot of people that are going to be listening to this are interested in is you get to a certain point in the evolution of your business and all of a sudden it hits you of, you know, we're not going to be around forever. And we, sometimes you have other things you want to do. So who's going to take the reins and how are you going to keep this thing, you know, going in perpetuity? So why don't you start, start the listeners off, tell a little bit about, you know, starting Tasty Catering because it started at a hot dog truck, right? That's right. Hot dog stand uh, in Niles, Illinois, uh, 1971. My brother uh, started the business with a couple of partners that weren't family. Uh, my brother Tom was the was that brother. Uh, my brother Larry was on his opening crew at the age of 15. I was only eight, so I didn't get in the business till I was 11. I worked my first day, um, but that was Tasty Pup and Niles. They expanded. They had several of those. They had a couple, uh, three bars, nightclubs, and even a carpet cleaning business. So my brother Tom's kind of been a serial entrepreneur since the 70s. Um, I came in about 76 full time, uh, worked there behind the counter for about eight years. Um, we were growing the business. My brother was and his one partner bought out another. Um, then eventually my brother and his partner ended up wanting to split. Uh, Tom, my oldest brother was really interested in getting his two little brothers involved in, more in the business and ownership. So we opened a place in Elk Grove Village in 1984, a hot dog restaurant. Um, expanded that to three different three restaurants over the years. Uh, in 1989, we started catering out of the back of one of them, uh, almost as a fluke. Uh, it was a customer request for something for a Super Bowl, and we said, "Hey, why don't we put together a menu and start a catering company?" So we took one piece of paper, folded it in half, and it was a four-page menu. Our first menu in 1989, 30, 31 years ago. That quickly started growing. Um, there was a big void in the corporate catering market. And uh, by 1996, we needed its, it needed its own space. We moved into a 5,000 square foot space in Elk Grove. Uh, thought we would be there at least 10 years. We made it about eight before we outgrew that. Uh, moved from 5,000 square foot to 23,000 square foot in 2005. And in order to fund that, we sold our last restaurant uh, to keep the growth and catering going. It was much better than retail to us where you open your doors and hope that you have a busy day, but if snow or rain or wind or anything gets into that, you, you don't know what you're gonna have. With catering, at least we knew by five o'clock the day before what we we're gonna do the next day. So 2005, we opened that place. Uh, 
catering had grown, was in the midst of a six-year stretch of 25 to 32% growth year after year. So it was really outgrowing the business. We grew up on command and control with World War II uh, Army parents. Um, and that's all we knew. And that worked in the 70s, 80s, and then somewhat in the 90s. But in the 2000s, you know, the different generations, uh, command and control was going out of style. It wasn't working anymore. <clears throat> People wanted to be more in the know and be more involved. Uh, we made a, as part of our thinking of our succession plan, like you referred to, Eric, um, we made two young leaders in our company that were really superstars in their 20s. We made them job offers for life with a little bit of equity, hoping that that could be our succession plan. And 24, 48 hours later, they came back to us and said, no, we're leaving unless the culture changes. And we said, what's the matter? It's a pretty good culture. It's a family culture. Well, that's just it. Sometimes the brothers don't get along so well. And uh, it's hard to work here when that happens. Uh, they were tired of spending 15 minutes each day trying to figure out which brother was red, yellow, or green. Red, stay away from at all costs. Yellow, okay, they seem to be in a decent mood. Let's approach with caution. Or green, hey, they're in a really good mood. Maybe we can get some work done today. Um, what had happened was we were to, to grow the business. We were just working harder and longer and harder and longer. And we were burnt out, tired, crispy, fried, snappy with our responses. It wasn't a good culture. So we uh, had to do some soul searching and look in the mirror. Can we do this? Uh, my oldest brother, what I believe was in his, was that 60s, late 50s at the time. Um, and we were pretty set in our ways. So thank goodness we were able to change. Uh, we let them build a culture. They said it had to be an employee built and an employee based culture. And we got on board and agreed. Um, we all read the, the Jim Collins book, Good to Great, and kind of patterned our culture after that. Um, uh, established core values, uh, culture statements, the whole nine yards. And they said, you know, the only way this is going to work is if the three of you follow it to the letter and hold others accountable. Otherwise, it's just writing on a wall. You know, how many times do you go in a company and see culture statements on the wall, but do they really come to life? So over the next four, five, six years, um, the company ended up starting to win awards for best places to work in Illinois, top six, five years, top five, six years in a row. Wall Street Journal's winning workplaces. Uh, uh, Inc. Magazine was mentioned, best and brightest workplaces. And it was only after the brothers got the heck out of the way that that started to happen. <laughs> um, so when the great game of business came along after the recession, uh, we found out about it in 2011, we said, hey, this is like the final piece to the puzzle to augment our culture and to really let the employees take control and, and run the company. Uh, started Q4 2011 with a great game. Um, by Q2 or three in 2012, we started getting a little stale with it. My brother Tom noticed, hey, something's going on with our huddles. You know, I don't know what it is, figure it out. So I went back down to Springfield, the home office of great game for some more training and figured out what we were doing wrong, came back and applied those principles, and it worked. And uh, at the time, my brother Larry said, uh, you know, you're pretty good at this stuff. Why don't you become a great game coach? And I thought about it, and I said, you know, I've been HR and purchasing for 15 years. It's people and numbers. The great game is people and numbers. And I said, you know, that, 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 that's a good fit. So. Within two months, I was a certified coach. I finished up my training, got interviewed, 
and became a certified coach in 2012. Since that time, uh, I transitioned from doing a little bit of great game to now 99% great game of business coaching. Um, my brother Larry has gotten heavily involved in the national catering community part, as part of the leading caterers of America. Invitation only group of uh, the top 50 or so caterers from the, across the country. And Tom actually wrote a book with a couple of professors on uh, employee entanglement in 2012 or so. Uh, reason I'm saying all that stuff is because that gradually transitioned us out of the business um, along with our employees' help. Uh, in about 2015, they realized that if they replaced me with somebody younger, smarter, and cheaper, that that would impact the financial statement in a positive way by my salary leaving and somebody else coming in and making improvements. So they kind of took over my job, um, transitioned me out of there. I was nervous because for 25 years or so, I was really good at food costs and watching costs and purchasing and negotiating. Well, the first year they ended up lowering food costs by two points, about a quarter million dollar savings. So I said, okay, I'm done, you're good. Um, <laughs> then uh, they actually moved my office next door another year later. Uh, we had bought the building next door and we had the building next door and they said, we need your desk. So they moved me completely out of the business. Uh, nowadays I spend 99% of my time doing the great game coaching. My brother Tom spends 60, 70% of his time on the road and Larry only spends about 30% of his time with Tasty Catering. And in 2018 and 2019, we had our most profitable years in the history of our company. So it works. That's that's a pretty impressive journey and there's there's a lot to unpack there, but there's a, there's a couple points I wanted to touch on. You know, starting starting back to, you know, closer to the beginning when you when you started identifying a couple people uh, that you uh, wanted to, 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 you know, transition into leadership over, over a certain period of time and you offered them equity and they turned you down because of the culture. And so the, the epiphany was you had to, you had to change the culture because money and, and those types of things aren't going to, you can pay somebody money, somebody else is going to come along and offer them more money at some point and they'll, they'll jump for that. Or if the culture is bad enough, there's not enough money you can offer somebody to stay. So you, you mentioned, you know, good to great. Was that kind of the culture catalyst just to get you started as a framework for how to, how to fix the culture or what, what was, you know, what was really, how did you, how did you figure out what needed to be fixed or was it just listening to the people and, and fixing what, the, what they were telling you was broken? The, the latter, Eric, you know, they came back and said, the culture's got to change or we're out of here. And we knew command and control. We didn't know Jim Collins. We didn't know modern culture back then. So he said, all right, what do you want to do? And kind of put it back on them as, all right, help us create a cult culture. Tell us what to do. Right? You lead, the, you lead the way. Because, you know, I've learned this later with the great game. People support what they help create. And if they build it, they'll take more ownership in it. We were just blind, dumb, lucky with that by saying, so, you know, hey, we don't know what we're doing. Why don't you help us? <laughs> They, they knew what they, they wanted to see and, and you just kind of put your egos aside and let them guide that, which I think that's, that's a really tough thing for founders to do because a lot of times that ego, you know, gets fueled by the success of the business and it's like, hey, look what I did. And, you know, in, in, in 
reality, it's, it's, Hey, look what we all did. And, you know, you mentioned about getting out of people's way, you know, that's, that's another key aspect of leadership is if you're going to build trust in an organization, uh, you know, you, you give them the guiding principles, you give them the vision, you give them, you know, help them with the goals, but you know, ultimately you have to trust people are going to do what, what you hired them to do. And, you know, that's, that's one of the founding principles of great game is, you know, people will support what they help create. And that's, that's how you truly get buy-in. And, you know, that's what we've been working on, you know, since, since we started playing the game in 2016. And it's interesting, you know, another part of your journey that I'm very familiar with because, you know, you wound up ultimately coaching us when, when we got started um, is that you guys tried to initially self-implement and that didn't go so well. And then right. you had to bring in some, some knowledgeable people to help guide you. You know, again, that's, that's another uh, key aspect, in my opinion, of leadership is, you know, a lot of times people are brought up and especially like you said, in that older command and control environment is I'm just going to do it myself. You know, Hey, I'm, I'm smart. I'll save some money. We don't need to hire a coach. Um, and, and that didn't go so well. And then, you know, you had to bring a coach in to fix the broken things and then teach you how to get it there. But I'll tell you, one of the things that really just, you know, got, got me at the heartstrings when, um, I read the book and, you know, went, went to the, uh, uh, two day seminar, you, you guys were hosting a tasty and you basically open up your business to letting other people come in and, and watch one of your huddles and it's not scripted. It's, you know, it's anything goes, it's just business as usual. People say what's on their minds. And, uh, one of the most fascinating things was, you know, your, I think it was your brother was, they were talking about a line item and he had saved a thousand dollars off of the plan and people started cheering. But one guy in the, in the, uh, in the everything stood up and went, Hey, wait a minute. He's not known for saving money. Where'd that thousand dollar savings come from? And it, it wound up, it just shifted to another line. And then everybody started, boo, you know, like you weren't fully transparent with that. I'm sitting in the back going, holy crap. Uh, you know, you've got all these guests in, in the audience here and somebody just had the, 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 the stones to stand up and, and call out one of the owners in front of all of us and had no fear of re repercussions for his job or anything. And it was, I mean, it, like I was sold. I wanted that kind of culture of, you know, hey, if I'm doing something, you know, not, not according to the plan, call me out on it. And that was, you know, I was sold from that point on that, you know, like whatever these, these people are doing, we've, we've got to implement this system and we've got to get this level of transparency and accountability in our organization. And it, it makes all the difference in the world from a culture aspect. Yeah. Um, a couple of things in there, Eric, you know, you said it right. It's, it's the hardest shift for an entrepreneur because entrepreneurs got to where they were with their company, sheer will, determination, long hours, wanting, willing, pushing to get their dreams realized. Once you get successful and it's working and it's grown beyond the single entrepreneur and that entrepreneur is the, is the bottleneck in the company, you've got to be humble enough to say, hey, I don't have all the answers, right? That's the ego thing, you know? Ego sometimes is a bad word. It's good to have a little bit. But humility, which is kind of similar to you, you know, if you're humble enough to say, hey, I don't have all the answers and you're vulnerable enough to, to ask your team, I need your help, you'll be amazed at the response you get. 
And then you just become a servant leader that serves their ideas and needs and wants. And, and you know, let's face it, once you're over 50, your entrepreneurship, your, your creative new ideas start to fade and you're thinking more about the end game. So why not let the 20 and 30 somethings in your company who are young and full of energy and full of taking risk and entrepreneurship, why not let them go? Unleash them. Absolutely. And, and to, to me, there's, there's a couple keys in there about, you know, what makes a great leader and, you know, humility is, is certainly one of those and vulnerability is another. I know that's part of what, uh, you know, my transformation that's still ongoing, um, you know, when we were doing our, our 12 week rollout, um, you know, it's, it's like, Hey, you're, you're going to have to be vulnerable here in front of your team. And, you know, a lot of them didn't even understand, you know, the, the structure of an S corp for, for example, like, you know, our, our company's an S corp, so we don't pay taxes per se, whatever, whatever profit is made by the company then gets thrown on my personal tax returns. And then, you know, however that affects the tax rate, and then you have to take a, a, a draw or so, somehow that money has to transfer out to pay the taxes because, you know, and that's the whole education process. And when we started, you know, unveiling that, the first reaction was like, you know, when people see the money the company makes and like, you get all that. And it's like, no, that's not how this works at all. I wish that was true. I mean, you know, that would be an amazing, amazing thing. And, you know, there are some people who do operate in that fat, fat mash fashion, easy for me to say, where they are, you know, basically depleting the company and it's it, 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 it there's there's no sense of security you know the, the the business could you know one shift in the business could go out of uh, go under the next day um you know and the owners live in a, you know basically it's a lifestyle and you know and that's and i'm nothing against those people it's just you know be transparent with your staff of that's this is this is what you've gotten into because people are you know a lot of people work really hard i i don't think there's a problem in in this country with effort um, people want to be connected to a higher purpose. And that's, that's what the open book and the great game has done for us is, is helped us on the journey of purpose and allowing people, you know, a voice and a say in the direction. And you're absolutely right, you know, about getting out of people's way and the, and the, the younger people and the people on the front lines is they see this stuff every day and it's not theory to them, but they're in it and they're dealing with whatever repercussions of, the circumstances of your business, why not let them speak out and say, hey, this is what's going on in the real world day to day. You might be reading all these management theory books, but my my day to day looks like this. And if we did just this, I mean, I, you know, seeing your, your uh, facility, you have this giant board of all the little costs that go into providing a catering service, you know, the 10 cent fork and all this stuff. And you know, you start getting people thinking at that level. It's amazing some of the things that they'll come up with. Yeah, it's the common misperception out there. There's a survey or study out there that the average employee thinks that companies make 36 and a half cents on the dollar in net profit. When in reality, blue chip stocks on Wall Street, blue chip companies you invest in are single digit net profit. And they're shocked. They think that where do, where do you hide the money? <laughs> we don't back up Brinks trucks. <laughs> we don't typically back up Brinks trucks as owners, right? You know, think about it. Walmart makes two and a half to three percent net profit. 
but they don't report that on Bloomberg or those other news channels. They say Walmart had 750 million in earnings last quarter. Well, on how many billion in sales? <laughs> Small little percentage. And it's, the other thing is, volume. we were we were we were open book management since the 80s in our, or so we thought since the 80s in our restaurants and built a bonus system just around revenue increases and cost of goods. Figuring we're smart owners, we can handle the expenses. Not teaching the employees past the uh, the income statement is is not good because they see the net profit at the bottom of a P&L or income statement and think that just goes in people's pockets. No, like you said, 30 to 40% of that goes to pay taxes. Then we've got long-term debt, balance sheet item. Then do we have the cash or do we have a million dollars in receivables, right? So cash flow. So connecting the dots between that net profit and including some cash flow items and some balance sheet obligations really paints the whole picture of business. Well, and, and especially, you know, when you when you start getting at a higher level of playing the game and then you, you get into contingency planning, um, a year like 2020 really hits home to emphasize why contingency plans are so crucial in, in leadership and in business in general, because, you know, nobody saw the pandemic coming prior to 2020. I mean, yeah, there'd been talk about at, at some point, this is possible, but you know, again, in the in the uh, the cases of reality and likelihood, n nobody was was calling for a pandemic in 2020. And one of the things that can happen if you're if you're not teaching the financial literacy piece in its entirety, like you said, um, you know, you you start showing people, and let's say you've got a lot of cash in the bank. Let's say you have you know two, three, four, ten million dollars of cash in the bank. And all of a sudden, a pandemic hits. Um, you know, a lot of companies were either surviving through the PPP loans that happened, or they didn't, they couldn't survive, or they were having to force for, uh, furloughs onto people. Um, a lot of decisions were made, you know, because the, the the company didn't have enough cash to survive a complete revenue shutdown. And those are the types of things that, you know, I think now more than ever, this pandemic is, is a perfect example of how to better educate your team on, you know, this is why we keep some of this in reserves. Because if you're showing them this stuff and they're like, well, hey, you've got enough money to give me more money. Why aren't you giving me more money? And it's, it's like, okay, it's not that we don't value you, but everybody who contributes to the business, you have to figure out what their value is to the business and then, you know, the bonus program that we've created that you guys have that, you know, most of the open book companies have is, is typically tied to the performance of the organization. And then one of the, one of the lessons that we learned early on is there's a reason you cap it because you can have a fantastic year and then the bonus goes completely out of control and you're paying out more in bonuses than you are in salaries. And then boom, something changes in the economy or something like a pandemic hits and you don't have the resources to survive because you basically gave it all away. So this, these are good lessons that could be learned from this year. And, and, and just from, again, the, the, the concepts of, of the great game and financial literacy and open book management. Well, the, the, the thing about the, and the difference between our old open book management that I put in air quotes before was just sharing a financial and paying a bonus. With a great game, you learn how to forecast and look at the future. It really trains everybody to think 
more than this week, right? We, we, we forecast to the end of the month. We look at quarters ahead, six months, a year, three years, five years down the road, and learn to try to look, see around corners to see what's coming and be prepared for it. You know, just dumb luck back in 2006, seven, those two young leaders both had entrepreneurial ideas. So we started four other companies with our employees uh, and those two people, one of them's involved in every one, one's involved in three out of the four new companies. And coming into COVID, you notice how I said our most profitable years are 2018 and 2019. Well, 2020 is gonna be our biggest loss ever, ever. Right, the catering industry has been decimated. Most caterers that that only do social catering are, are down 97%. Thank goodness we had a corporate side. We're only going to be down 80%. Woohoo! <laughs> um, but if we didn't have those other companies, we might be on the edge of bankruptcy right now as we're sitting here in September. Right? But because of the other companies, because of the cash reserves we built up playing the great game since the last recession, um, because of the equity we built, we've got enough cash runway to sustain the business and jobs for at least until next summer, maybe even beyond that. Yeah. So, you know, powerful lesson about contingencies and looking around corners and forecasting. You know, when, when the pandemic hit, our people were fearful. We explained to them where, we're, where we were, what, what our intention was, how much cash runway we had. We went to every two weeks giving them an update. So a two week planning, all right? This is our plan for the next two weeks. This is the plan for the next two weeks after that because things were changing by the minute, right? Restrictions, no restrictions. So in all that, by, by just communicating openly about what we had in front of us, they were involved. And they came to us and said, all right, we've got to cut hours. They cut their own hours. Everybody's going to go down 10% uh, in pay. And uh, we're going to cut our hours from 40 to 30. They went another two, three weeks with that, saw it was still uh, nothing going on, not much going on, and came back and said, all right, the long-term future of this company is critical we're okay if we go down to 20 hours. If anybody has a problem with it, let us let everybody know and we'll try to get you more hours. But this isn't your three owners deciding this stuff. This is the frontline people saying, we want the company to be around after this COVID's done with, and we got to do everything we can to survive. And we see where the cash is. We see our, you know, let's extend that runway as long as we can, because we want to work here. That, that was a very emotional day for me as an owner when they told us that I kind of broke down a little bit because that that was unbelievable. It just it just showed the, the, the culture and the team and, and open finances and and how the employees were thinking, acting and feeling like owners. Amazing stuff. Well just just think about that in 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 uh, context of this pandemic. Imagine if the entire country, if all the businesses that were operating here played you know, the great game or, or practice open book management, uh, how much different this could have turned out if you had all the frontline workers pulling together. And, you know, that that's a, a testament to culture when everybody pulls together and says, if, if we're going through this, it's not going to be some of us get sacrificed in, you know, for the greater good to keep the business going. And, you know, some of you just can't survive here. We're all going to, we're all going to take the hit together and you know we're we're looking beyond the short term struggles we'll all struggle together we'll all share the struggles 
and it's with the eye on coming out, you know, what do we have to do? How tight does the belt have to get for all of us so that there is another side to this and we can get back to some, some semblance of normal? Imagine if, if the entire country was doing that, how much different this pandemic would have played out for, for the United States uh, because you'd, you'd have so much more input from the frontline workers, the people who are in the trenches every day on, you know, what could be done as opposed to, you know, CEOs in boardrooms, you know, just, just slashing and, and hacking just to keep their, their bonuses and their paychecks going. And I'm not saying that happened in every situation, but you know, that was happening out there is that, you know, there were, there were private equity or venture capital, putting pressure on people to like, you know, cut the red, you know, stop the bleeding and, you know, the people be damned. We'll, we'll find more people after this is over. It, it could have been a whole different scenario had this, this, this whole open book uh, methodology been practiced everywhere. Yeah. One thing I forgot is part of that vote to reduce everybody's hours and, and wages was the owners took a 30% pay cut. That's what they told us. We said, okay. We're okay yeah. with that, right? Um, we're a little more mature. We have some investment. Great. We don't need that income as much as they do, right? right? So that was part of the deal. You know, all for one, one for all. We're all in this together. Um, but yeah, it could have been a lot different if we weren't playing the great game of business coming into this pandemic. I, we, I'm guessing we would be right now on the edge of bankruptcy, looking at winter, which is our slowest time of year. Looking at winter, not many holiday parties, and saying, "All right." What are we going to do? But yeah. the, the the inspiration from them, you know, the, the the biggest word that's been used lately has been pivot. You know, pivot is contingency. What are we going to change to? What's our contingency plan? And what they've been coming up with has just been incredible. You know, how can we still get our products to, to customers that, that miss our picnics, right? Miss our hamburgers and hot dogs. They came up with a barbecue in a box where you can take our our products home that you can't get in grocery stores that some have made made custom just for us use our secret seasoning spice on the burgers and, and get a flavor of their company picnic that they've loved for 10 years in a row you know all sorts of different innovations like that have been percolating around tasty well that's that's i mean you guys have had that going on for quite a while because um you know as you said you 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 evolved into the corporate side but you you also started doing weddings and and things like that too right you never had that and that that came out of a a, a an employee idea right that was that was a brainstorm of you know hey we've got we've got six months out of the year in chicago where being outside having a picnic isn't necessarily a given what what else can we be doing to you know again expand that revenue change different increase revenue streams and, and that came from, from the frontline workers, right? Yeah, diversify. How do we diversify, diversify, diversify? So um, 2011, 12, my brother Tom was still active in, as a sales director role or sales leadership role. And he didn't like to do weddings because he didn't want to deal with mothers of the brides and brides and grooms and all that goes into planning a wedding, right? It's 20 phone calls and 300 emails back and forth for some weddings. <laughs> Whereas the corporate clients, easy, right? They know what they want. They know when they, they send in an order by email, bang, you put it in the computer, away you go. Well, you looked around and saw our sales staff was mostly mid to late 20s. And they came up to him and said, why don't we do weddings? He says, as long as I don't have to sell them, go for it. <laughs> 
So thank goodness at the time we did maybe just under a hundred thousand dollars. Our total revenue last year was uh, nine and a half, ten million, right in there. Uh, but at the time, six out of six million dollars in, in revenue, we were doing a hundred thousand in weddings. Well, 2019, we did a uh, million a million dollars plus in weddings out of the nine million. So yeah. if we didn't we didn't have that. What would the growth have been? Right. And that came just from an organic idea of, of people because you, because you fostered a culture of innovation as it were. And, you know, people saw opportunity, you know, again, they're, they're watching, they're watching the books, they're watching the P and L and they're seeing, Hey, we're, we're a very seasonal company. What can we do to offset that seasonality in a place where, you know, six months out of the year, any given day, it could snow 20 inches. <laughs> so yeah, and how, that, how do we fix that? Not only that, Eric, but you know, after the last recession, the corporate market that we thrived in started getting attacked and became a red ocean from all the Jimmy Johns and Paneras and Subways becoming caterers, you know, because the National Restaurant Association told them to, to get through the last recession, 2008, that they can use their same staff and their foodstuffs and, be, and start selling off premise. So as that market started to erode, our team looked and said, what can we do? What markets can we expand in? And they said, you know, we can do special events better than other people. So why don't we expand our weddings? They, they kind of badgered us because the three old <laughs> the three old brothers didn't want to do weddings and have to deal with that. And they said, we'll take care of it. We'll prove yeah. it's profitable. We'll, we'll, it, it'll help us out. This is, this is like, um, you know, the Amazon, the Netflix of... It, 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 everything changes, you know, nothing stays the same and things evolve, business models evolve. And, you know, Netflix used to mail CDs to ever or DVDs to everybody. And, you know, Blockbuster used to put VHS tapes on a wall and you used to come in to get it. And that, that dynamic changed and you see Netflix was able to shift and adapt and, and now they're actually producing their own content versus a Blockbuster where, you know, I think there's one store left in the entire world. You know, and it's a novelty at this point because nobody's nobody's going out to rent movies anymore. You're basically clicking a button on your screen, and and the entire world's available to you. So if you're if you're not incentivizing the the the, the people in the organization to help you look around those corners, it's exactly like you said. The three brothers, you know, if, if it was just up to the three of you, you know, no offense, but you you might not even be sitting here today, right? Yeah. And no, I'd probably be on a truck delivering food. <laughs> um, but, you know, that shows the changing business climate and, and how fast business changes nowadays. It's, it's at like warp speed. Think about when we were younger, Eric, you had the big companies and the big uh, rule the market space over the small. They gobble them up. Big beats small all the time. Now it's fast beats slow. You know, if you're one of those older companies, think about how many companies have struggled. You know, the old International Harvester, the Westinghouse, you know, all the big companies that didn't become nimble and fast have gone by the wayside. Well, let me, let me, I want to ask you one final question. Um, you know, as, as we talked earlier, you know, you guys had identified uh, an opportunity to, to plan for the future and a leadership change. And you brought in a new CEO. Was it last year? Was it 2019 January? Yeah. 2019. So I met Cornell up at uh, the, the uh, small giants um, 
in Detroit and your brother Tom was there and he was going through that leadership academy. So you guys, that was another piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, our small giants friends and the great game communities are very tight knit and there's, there's a, t a ton of overlap in terms of the people who are part of both communities. And so you guys decided that, you know, he was, he was going to take the reins and, you know, eventually, you know, take over things. How has that gone? Um, you know, I, I, I can imagine just a transition like that is tough in any time, but, you know, his first challenge is having to deal with a global pandemic and an 80% <laughs> drop in business. So how's, how's he doing? <laughs> As I, he's doing fantastic, fantastically well. As I told him, if you can make it through this, you can handle anything. So let's just get through this. Let's let's get her done. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's probably like, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing that's going to come at me the rest of my career that I won't be positioned to handle after you know an eighty percent revenue drop. Yeah. Um, no, I, and I got to change that a little bit. Cornell's the one who told us he wanted to be the CEO someday. Okay. Um, in, our, in our review process, it's simple. Or we call it one-on-ones because review, I don't know, one-on-ones, we do things a little differently at Tasty. We ask, where are you doing well in your job? Where do you feel you can improve? How can we help? Uh, if you own the company, what would you change, right? And then whose job do you want? And back when he was going through business school 10, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, he was going through school for a business degree. He said, uh, or shortly thereafter, he said, I want to be the CEO. So we started this process 10, 12 years ago. Um, he was originally in logistics. He worked his way into operations, became the director of operations, became the director of sales because he had to learn each facet of the company and how it ticked and what was the pains and what was the, the gains in each, you know, what was the pros and cons. Uh, and he also, through that process, earned the trust and respect of every single human being in our company, which is critical for a CEO to do in my mind, earn respect and trust. You know, respect as a human, not just because you have a, letters after your name, CEO. Right, right. Um, so in any case, he finished his debt journey. Along the way, we tried to get him every opportunity to start expanding his network of peers expanding his network of outside mentors other than the three brothers uh, and just expanding his horizons. So the small giants was a perfect group because they've got people who own companies that started up and now they're wildly hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, uh, that's where we found out about the great game is my brother Tom met Jack Stack at a small giants function. You know, so there's other Jack Stacks out there that Cornell right. could learn from and bounce ideas off of. And he could talk to you about something having to do with CEO ship, right? And it yeah. wasn't just the three brothers cloning him into what we did that worked for the last 30 years. So well, he's, was he's definitely got his own ideas. I mean, him and I have had, had quite a few chats and you know, that, that was, you know, especially around technology. I mean, he's got a lot of ideas there that, you know, again, no offense that just the three brothers, just that wasn't your thing. And it was just like, you know, I, I, computers, I, you know, just, <laughs> just make, make it work and get out of my way. I don't want to hear anything about it. <laughs> yeah, you, you can say it, Eric. We're ignorant to that stuff. Where's the, where's the switch and why doesn't it work? Figure it it's out for not, me. <laughs> it's not your gift, that's all. Correct. <laughs> Thank but you for being kind. That's the thing with, uh, you know, helping to make this transition. I mean, I hope it's clear to everybody listening here that there, it was intentional. 
there was a path that we, it took a while. It's still undergoing. Uh, you provided them an environment to succeed. You're, you're, you're expanding his horizons in every way possible. There's, there's no such thing as too big of a network of, of people, you know, to, to share experiences with and, and gain that additional, you know, we're, we're, we're more powerful in, in the group than we are alone. And it's just, that's, that's to me kind of the, the big takeaway here is if you're, if you're looking to, um, I, I forget, I, I read so many books, I forget which book I was reading, but it was, uh, they were talking about the, the percent chance of success from bringing in an outside CEO versus building one from within, you know, when you finally do have to do that transition. And I think it's something like less than 10% of a chance that somebody's going to come in and be able to continue carrying the culture. Now they, they might succeed, but there's going to be a radical shift in the business. It's not going to look like the, the, the business before. And, you know, but, but when you build from within and promote from within, you're going to keep the culture going. It's, it's like Simon Sinek's book, the infinite game. It's that infinite mindset. We're not, we're not playing to win. We're playing to stay in the game. And I think there's a lot of concepts from infinite game that could be applied to the great game of business to, to maybe even change it to the infinite game of business, you know, and, and, and really just focusing on being better every day and staying in the game. And that's, that's your perfect example of that. I mean, there's not too many businesses that could survive an 80% loss of revenue and come on a show and joke about it. I mean, you know, it's a serious thing, but you know, most people would be in a fetal position in the corner watching their life, their, their life's work just evaporate. So there, there's a lot of, a lot of powerful lessons in here. And you know, I, I just want to thank you for, for coming on and sharing your story with us. And, you know, again, hopefully the people that are listening, there's, there's some great takeaways here. Um, I always like to end with how can people get in touch with you? Because you're, you're a, you're a great resource uh, you've been a great friend. You've been a great coach for us. Um, if people are interested in learning more about open book management or getting in the game, what's a, what's a good way to reach out to Kevin? K-W-A-L-T-E-R, K-Walter at G-G-O-B.com. K-Walter at G-G-O-B.com. All right. And uh, feel, feel, feel uh, trustworthy enough to give out a phone number? or <laughs> Absolutely. 224 629-6387. That's 224-629-6387. Well, Kevin, this has been great. Um, I, I hope you'll be back because I'm sure there's a lot of things we still can share with the audience. This was just maybe even a teaser of all the things that you've taught me since, since we started working together. Um, you know, you've got a, a, a great company that you and your brothers have built and the people that work with you have built. Um, so there's, there's a lot still to be learned. So I hope you'll join us again in the near future. Thank you, Eric. Really appreciate being on. And it's not so much what we built. It was us being able to get the hell out of the way and let, <laughs> and let the people thrive. You know, I, I like to say we sign, we can sign mortgages. We do this. That's just our seat on the bus, but the company heartbeat is the people. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kevin. And thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been another uh, episode of Tempered Leadership. Uh, we'll be back next week with another inspiring guest. Until then, uh, be well. Take care of yourself. Take care of those in your charge. And uh, we'll see you next week.
Oh, thank you.